This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. There's a famous uh, story that when one of the disciples of the guru, Ramana Maharshi, asked him, how should we treat others? The guru replied, there are no others. And I imagine that left the disciple the same position as the Zen student who asked his master, how should I practice? And was told, die on the cushion. And there the student at least had the courage to ask, are there any preliminary steps? What the two stories illustrate, I think, is that while we sometimes need to be challenged or inspired or even awakened by the perspective of the absolute, it's not where we're going to live our day-to-day lives. And the task of practice and the task of ethics is to figure out how to negotiate our daily life in a way that combines a perspective of oneness or no self with the reality of our own impermanent, interdependent, embodied existence with uh, what certainly feels to be uh, uh, other people. When we talk about the precepts, we traditionally discuss them in terms of three different perspectives that one way or another we're called upon to integrate. There is a literal perspective that is a matter of rules and prohibitions. They can be valuable guidelines, but if all we do is follow them literally, We have a very constricted picture of our life and our behavior. There's a perspective of the absolute in which everything is just as it is, whole, perfect, nothing missing, and there are no rules to follow. 
that can be very liberating, but very dangerous. And there seems to be a middle ground of skillful means. But even there, we have to be careful, particularly teachers, because if you think all the rules really are a matter of adapting to particular circumstances, it's very easy to begin to rationalize why particular rule doesn't actually apply to you in this particular circumstance because you've got another more subtle uh, agenda uh, and you're allowed to bend things for some greater good. And sometimes, as I say, that simply becomes a rationalization when a simple don't do it would be a lot more uh, effective. So there's no one perspective that we can reside in all the time where one way or another are either blessed or condemned to having to constantly move between perspectives, move between uh, ways of uh, negotiating our being in the world. Now, when I first started teaching, and I, as I was practicing as a therapist at the same time as I began teaching, I started seeing a lot of people uh, who sought me out because they were having psychological difficulties with their practice. And one of the first things that I uh, recognized was that in this practice world, of oneness and no self, people often got into a lot of trouble because there didn't seem to be any legitimate place for their own needs. The language was always about selflessness, about compassion, about what your obligations were to others very little about what your obligations were to yourself or what kinds of needs could be considered legitimate, whether they were emotional needs or simply material needs. What am I allowed to want? What am I allowed to have? There seem to be no good answers uh, to those questions for people in certain kinds of practice communities that just over and over again emphasized compassion to others, being one with the other. All, in a way, all good precepts, but they became one-sided in a way that I eventually came to call taking a vow to save all beings minus one. There was just no language 
within the practice world to legitimize one's own one's own needs and one's own own wants. Now, as we discuss um, Garfield's chapter on ethics, I think we have to watch out for this tendency to uh, privilege a certain picture of selflessness that doesn't seem to make any room uh, for both our own needs and our own sense of agency and responsibility. I've found this to be one of the weaker chapters in the book, and I'm curious to see how in the discussion other people have responded to it. In the beginning, he He thinks that when we hold on to a notion of the self, we put ourself in the center of the world. There's us and there's the self and objects out there. And that our perspective is always skewed by putting ourselves in the middle of things. And he says that One can't have an ethics that depends on proximity. That if there's going to be ethical rules or obligations, they ought to apply equally and universally to everyone everywhere. And I suppose that means my responsibility extends equally and universally to everyone everywhere. There are no others. I have to, I should treat everyone as myself. I cannot imagine what this is supposed to look like in daily life. And one of, for me, one of the values in switching from a language to, from self to person, as he usually does, is that it takes us away from universals and abstractions and reminds us that we are embodied creatures living here and now in a particular place with particular limitations. When we recognize ourselves as embodied, we may start by thinking, well, I can see the stars. I, my sight extends millions of miles. 
But my hearing, well, I don't know. How far can you hear a sound? A few miles, maybe, under the right circumstances? And walking. How far can I walk? How far can my body carry me in a day? How many miles is that? But then my reach, how, how far in front of me will my hand extend? What can I actually touch and feel and pick up? All of a sudden, the circle is coming in much closer. When we think of our embodied senses this way, we see that there's this big range and discrepancy between what we can see and what we can touch. And we might be able to say what we can imagine and what we can actually do. And I think part of being embodied is to recognize our finiteness and our limitations. And I think this has to extend to our sense of responsibility uh, as a kind of uh, dimension of our agency. We are part of a community and social relationships and interconnected and maybe small things that we do add up when done by lots of people to make a big impact. But what we ourselves can do at any given time is circumscribed and finite. And I think that we have to come to terms with that. And I think it has to be reflected in our sense of moral responsibility. I think proximity is a very real dimension of our moral sense. If anybody tells me that I should feel equally responsible for the life or death of a child starving in Africa that I do for my own son, I think there's something crazy about that and impossible about that. There's a way in which when I become aware of a particular child in a particular circumstance, I can become empathic with that situation, compassionate, do what I can. But that the idea that somehow my moral obligation must extend to millions of people I will never know or name or see in the same way it's going to extend to my family. Well, this doesn't sound like a life anyone can actually lead. I can't save all those people in the same way that my arm can't reach across the ocean. I'm embodied and I'm limited. And I think there's some way in which we have to 
come to terms and accept the limits of our responsibility the same way as we have to come to terms with and accept the reality and legitimacy of our own particular needs. We can't dissolve them into some universalized abstraction that has no boundaries. And the other thing that I want to bring up about uh, Garfield's discussion of ethics is uh, his notion of causality and free will. And how he, he talks, how the notion of will and responsibility is brought in by St. Augustine as a way to let God off the hook or uh, there being evil in the world. There has to be some way in which we weren't just created as uh, automata that he could have made uh, always choose good instead of choosing the evil. Uh, we have to feel that if we're going to have moral responsibility, there has to be something like moral agency and free will. And he thinks that this is sort of a bogus idea smuggled in from religion. Uh, but where he goes with that is how efficacious it would be to see other people's actions as the result of causes outside of their control. That instead of getting angry or blaming or vengeful about what's been done to us, we can interrupt that cycle of anger by realizing they're only acting the way they did because of circumstances that happened to them. That, that's all true. But he tells us then how much F how much better and efficacious it would be if we chose to see things that way. But how can he talk that way if he's just said, we have no real free will? All, I, all you could say is, wouldn't it be better if I was conditioned by my circumstances to react that way? Because whatever I decide or whatever I do, just like all those other people, isn't a matter of my free will. It's a matter of all the antecedent things that have happened to me. So how can you even begin to talk about ethics or moral choices or better ways of behavior if you don't legitimize a sense of agency? In the past, I've talked about ethics as learning to respond well when you're treated badly. This has to be a matter of discernment and choice. We can't simultaneously talk about ethics and talk about there not being free will. These things can't go together. Even if you think there's some way in which everything is determined, as soon as you think it's better to rescue the child from the burning building rather than to uh, leave them there to die, you're making a, a choice and assuming you have agency to decide one thing or another. 
Now, it's always going to be the case that we can look for antecedent causes to our actions in ourselves as well as others. But we also always have to integrate that with a sense of our own choice and responsibility. We can't ignore either side of that. Uh, that's one of the things that got called bad faith by the existentialist to, to lurch from one extreme to the other, of thinking if the things are either entirely determined and out of your control and that you have no responsibility for anything, or to feel that you're completely unconstrained and unconditioned and oblivious to all the factors that make you see the world the way you do. Both are ditches on one side or the other of the of a middle way. That's always hard to define. Hard, hard to find. I think that spiritual practices, because they so often deal in what seems like absolutes, language of oneness, language of no self, make it very hard to find a middle way. The middle way ends up seeming like it's a uh, diluted compromise all the time. And that if we, you know, the real thing is to uh, exists somehow in this realm uh, all the time in which there are no others, in which I have no self-centered needs whatsoever. But we always have to live in the middle. No matter how much we want to care for others, sacrifice for others, there's some point in which we have to decide that's all I can do. That's enough. I have to also have a roof over my head and some kind of uh, sustenance to keep myself going. If you feel like you have to just give and give until there's nothing left, well, you can end up living a life of a mendicant monk, have no shelter, live on alms, uh, I think this would certainly relieve you of your guilt that you're selfishly claiming too much resources in a world of hunger and deprivation. But it's not clear that as a monk, you're doing much to relieve the suffering of others, having given it all away. You just are poor yourself and one more person who has to be taken care of. Wherever we decide to draw a line that this is what I need, this is what I want, somewhere or another, somebody can come by and say, that's arbitrary. You haven't given enough. You haven't sacrificed enough. How do you ever answer that? What are you allowed to want? What are you allowed to need? How do you decide? <clears throat> 